Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Live in the NASDAQ market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Pete Najeri and Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman and Guy Adami. A wild Wednesday on Wall Street. Stocks tumbling early in the session only to stage a monster comeback. We'll find out what drove the big turnaround. We are also keeping an eye on shares of Lyft. It's been a bumpy ride in the after-hour session after reporting results. Lyft's conference call is just getting underway. We've got full team coverage standing by to break down all the big headlines. But we begin with the market's roller coaster ride of rate shock slamming stocks right at the open. At one point, the Dow was down. 589 points, but then came the turnaround. Yields started coming off the lows, and stocks staged their biggest comeback of the year. What was behind this, Tim? I think we just got so oversold, Mel. If you look at the 10-year, we were actually at 20 years we hadn't been this oversold in a relative strength or however you want to measure it, but you can measure it. I mean, you can basically see that we went from 204 down to one kind of 61, 159, I think was the low um, on the 30-year bond. We got within a whisper. We might have touched. We were probably a bit north of the all-time historical low set on July 8th. So when you came in this morning, it was Bonds, banks, and Brent, which were, which were driving the story. And, and then suddenly that turnaround Tuesday that we were talking about happened on Wednesday. And, and again, I think you just came from a place of being extremely oversold. The machines had gone to work, whatever you want to say. Um, fundamentals on the equity market right now are such that I think bad news is bad news. Uh, and I think that, that that's not necessarily going to uh, be a, a panacea in the way that it has been. But I think for a day, uh, at least we're addressing the reality Think things were oversold. I mean, it, we were just showing the, the chart of the 10-year yield. 173 is where we went out. But can you imagine that in the pre-market session when the futures really started rolling over, we were more than 10 basis points lower. lower. I mean, that's an extraordinary interest. Yeah, and I, I can't answer what was behind it, but what I will say is, and we talked about this Monday, you were looking on Tuesday for a day where the market craters and then spends the rest of the day recovering. That was going to be your tell. All right, we didn't get it yesterday, and we're all disappointed. We talked about it at the top of the show. We thought it was a bit of a head fake. Today is that day, and I have no idea if this is a bottom or not, but if nothing else... Today gives you something to trade against on the long side with a number of different stocks that I'm sure we'll talk about. But you're basically your level is on the downside in the S&P, now 2,800. So, again, having no idea what the future holds in terms of this market, I think today gave you a very interesting tradable bottom. So you feel better? Oh, much better today. Absolutely. Do you feel better? I do. I mean, we were all talking about turnaround Tuesday and how it really was unfortunate. Yesterday we came in and the market was up. That doesn't feel very flushing out of panic. or And so very you know, very good to see it down that big was, you know, a little bit scary. And so, you know, I like to watch the VIX and we got up one, not quite 24. I mean, it's starting to get into panicky sort of feeling. Pete can talk more about that. But so to me, this is a day where I have to sort of, all right, I got to start selling puts, even though it's really scary to do because you feel like you need that protection, but also you can see it just collapse. I haven't started thinking, all right, what am I going to buy yet? I would say that the combination of the trade war, currency war issue that we face right now, I, I think it was legit that we were getting sold the way we were. And have we gotten the bottom? None of us really know the answer to that right now. But I would say this. 
We bring it up all the time. I specifically bring it up, so I'll put it on my shoulders. Algorithms, right? Algorithmic trading. Well, this absolutely, that turn from noon, Mel, to till the close on today was unbelievable how fast that, that move was to the upside. So algorithms, in my opinion, were a big part of this. And, were they a part of the downside? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, I bring, but that's yeah, yeah. I, I bring that up all the time to the downside, so I'm bringing it up to the okay. upside now right. is the algorithms were going to the upside. So it happens in both directions. This is a great example of that. And Karen brings up volatility. Well, we were stuck in that 12 to 14 in the month of July, basically. Well, since we've gotten to August, we're 18 to 24. And this volatility, I think there's going to be volatility within volatility. We've pushed up towards 24 a couple of different times, pulled back. Today, we actually pulled all the way back, back underneath 20, closer to 18, 19. I don't know that that's over with because I continue to see buyers of the VIX and buyers of other different areas of the marketplace that tell me they don't think it's over just yet. Uh-huh. Yeah, just, you know, the, the intraday move to the downside was almost as extraordinary, at least to the upside. Look, I woke up this morning, Dow futures were flat down small. It was not the day it was set up to be. Uh, by the time I got dropped, done dropping my kids off at camp, it was, it was time to feel pretty concerned. And it was time to actually assess really what had changed this morning. And nothing had changed. If anything, we had some more reinforcement from Fed governor saying that this um, could be a, 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 an environment where the the Fed may have to change and be more aggressive. The bottom line here is, again, back to the Fed. I think the Fed has been rendered irrelevant. And, and I think we have a case here where um, whether this is ultimately good news, Guy, I would pose this to you. In other words, is it, is it now good news that the Fed no longer can equal good news on bad news? Does that make sense? Not, no. And usually, so, especially so, for you, so, 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 you so, 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 me, I mean. In other words, as we are seeing the sell-off today and the rollover, et cetera, there wasn't that thinking kicking in that this is going to make Here's it more likely for the Fed to... to yeah, and, and again, I mean, I, I happen to think that central... And Steve Leisman is coming on. I don't want to sort of bury the lead here, but we'll talk about central banks. But I think so many of them have made the, rendered themselves irrelevant. Now the markets have taken over, I think, to Pete's point. Including see the U.S. Federal within, Reserve. Without, well, without question. But that's, we'll have that conversation. But in terms of... I don't feel secure that it's a bottom by any stretch. My point at the top of the show is, I think today gave you something to sort of shoot against on the downside for the first time in a while. In other words, you have a tradable bottom. We didn't have it yesterday. We talked about it. I think you might have had it today. All right. Well, today's rate plunge isn't confined to the United States. Yields across the globe are collapsing as central banks aggressively cut rates. In the past 24 hours, we've seen surprise cuts from New Zealand, Thailand, and India. They join a slew of other nations that have eased over the past few months. The global tightening is even putting uh, more pressure on the Fed to do the same. Let's bring in Steve Leisman with more on this. Um, What's the point? Seymour said I'm irrelevant. No, not you. Not you. Whoa, you equate, that means, first of all, that means hey, you equate to yourself with the Federal Reserve. Wow. But, but, but to the point that is the Federal Reserve in control here? Are we just being whipsawed around by what's going on around the world in, in other central banks? I think Tim is right to the extent that the markets have done substantial easing for the economy and for the Federal Reserve. The Fed's job now is to either meet that easing by bringing down rates or to go against it. And if you look at where the probabilities are, they are substantially priced for more easing by the Federal Reserve. A 100% chance for the September cut with some 30% or so odds for a 50 basis point cut. And then you move on and now there's at least really now three cuts just about price in December goes up and down above 50 percent. Three line. more cuts in play. Exactly. Three more cuts currently in play. Um, and, and I think that's a big deal. And the question I think you have, among other questions out there, is to what extent does the Fed have to act because other central banks are, 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 are acting? 
And that becomes a question you could put in terms of, is the Fed the price maker or the price taker in this case? It's not always one or the other, but take a look at the spread between the German 10-year and the U.S. 10-year. We have been at historic, really historic wides, and now it's come in. That's what happened. That was one of the things that happened today. Melissa, you and I were on set this morning during really extraordinary action around the world when the German Bund started hitting all-time lows and the U.S. 10-year actually fell further, which was still on the positive side of zero. Right. Um, when you say the spread between the, the Bund and the U.S. Treasury are compressing, I mean, in the context of... Barely, but some, yeah. Okay. In the context of a belief put forth by PIMCO that U.S. rates could go to zero... What then happens to that spread? Does that mean that, that rates around the world are that much more this negative? This is where you want to engage Tim, but I'll just throw this idea uh-huh. out here. Among other places you want to engage Tim, but definitely, oh, well, on, the, definitely on this one here. Which is, it's the price maker, price taker argument. Did what we see happen around the world, both in what central banks did and what markets did, in response to our cutting rates? In other words, if we cut, are they going to cut more? I don't know that we can catch up with them. I don't know that if we cut down to zero, I mean, it's hard if we want to. All of this is hard to grasp. Even a discussion about zero U.S. interest rates seems absurd to me and would have seemed more absurd if PIMCO hadn't tweeted that out as a real possibility not too long ago. But would they go even more negative such that the spread itself is what the market is setting? Right. And I don't know the answer to that. Well, uh, what I what I think has happened, first of all, if you think back in November, we were at 290 on that spread of U.S. over Germany. If you think about where we've gone um, in the last call it two months. That's really where we've tightened up, and it's really been the last two weeks. Uh, from, from 30 to minus 50 uh, on the bun, that's basically where you started to see the U.S. catch up. And if you look at relative value spreads, to me, there's no question the Fed is the price maker. And the, the Fed is the one that's inflicted this upon the world. Um, to be clear, uh, it doesn't mean, though, that, that the other central banks, which have had much you know, easier time basically spiraling to zero, and look what it's done to the banking system in Europe. We already know what it did to the banking system in Japan. 30, 35, 40 years ago. Um, that's what we're up against here. I, I think the Fed, who talks about following the history books, um, is very aware of that. Let me ask something, Steve. Must the Fed be responsive to our trade policy? No. And they really don't want to be. And they would love to condition the market not to be. If you look back at what Bullard said the other day, we cannot be involved in every tit-for-tat trade development that happens, every give and take. Where the Fed wants to be, which is somewhat different from where it is and where it can be, is it wants to be in a place where if you have a tariff put on, it would respond to clear evidence that it's hurt the U.S. economy. Um, And and I just don't think it's in a place right now where it can necessarily do that, given the pressure from President Trump and given what's going on around the world. So it's going to play politics. I, I, I think there's a political backdrop to what's going on. I will say one more thing about this spread. I don't think the Fed targets this. I don't think they're in the business of chasing these yields lower. They do know that there is some place where it's just way out of whack with where the rest of the world is. And that's going to at least partially animate what what, what they decide to do on rates. You want to make any guesses as to what happens tomorrow? With... I think we're going to have an interesting morning. That's what I think. I I mean, who knows? But uh, uh, what what I'm worried about is is that all of this takes place in an orderly way. 
When you have big moves like this, there's disruption, dislocation. I called my buddies on the repo desks and the yeah. GC markets. There was some soft trade there, but not the kind of thing you worry about when you get major dislocations. That's where I'm going to say, okay, now we got a problem. Markets can adjust and go crazy and, sure. and things go up and down as much as they want. It's when the financial system gets clogged that you have to start to worry. That's not happening here. All right. Steve, thank you. Good to Pleasure. see you. Steve Leisman. Um, we've been talking about negative rates, negative bond rates, for instance. How exactly do negative rates, negative yields work? Our chairwoman did some <laughs> yeah. homework for us. <laughs> right. 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 Let's get to a trade school. school. All right. Schneiderman. So we're all in this very unusual position of trying to understand what do negative rates actually mean. Right. So let's look at the German 10 year bun. And we can see in July negative things were a little bit better than where they are now. And it was down like maybe 28 basis points, negative 28 basis points of yield. OK, but what does that really mean? People are confused. Does that mean you actually pay interest to Germany, to the German government for these bonds? Not exactly. So let's look what happens. Let's look at the price of these bonds. In July, Germany issued new 10-year bonds around July 10th, and rates were still negative then. The way the mechanism actually works is you paid something north of 100 euros for these bonds, right? So let's say it was 103-ish at the time. You pay 103, and these are 0% coupon. They do not pay any interest at all. And at the end of 10 years, you will get back 100 so now rates have moved more and more negative, and right now, here we are, 106. So we're at about 50, 60 basis points negative. So you buy the German 10-year, this is the most active one, the most recent one, you pay 106, you receive no interest, nor do you pay any interest. But at the end of 10 years, July 10th of 2029, you are going to get back 100. And that's the mechanism for how a new tenure at a negative rate actually works. So the coupon isn't actually negative. They just they calculate it forward and take it off the principal. Right. For what the market will bear of how much negative rates they will accept. And 106 is where we are right now. All right. Karen, come on back. Yeah, we have that pretty piano music, the more you the know more stuff. You know. Hopefully they can you know fire that. As that, well as There's ever a time for that. There it is. It is lovely, that's isn't beautiful. it? It's soothing. Did you have uh, any commentary to go no, along know, with that? <laughs> no, I do have commentary to go oh, along with oh, that. Okay. It's interesting. Everybody seems to th- I'm a, a lot of people seem to think somehow lowering rates strengthens economies. That's a fallacy. I mean, just look around the world what's going on. I mean, again, I'm probably the lone voice to say this, but if everybody's jumping off the Empire State Building, why should we? In other words, if everybody's lowering rates, why should the U.S.? I believe we're in a position now to do nothing or raise rates, as crazy as that might sound. And by the way, there are other people out there now blowing that same horn. So this is going to go on. It can't end well. With that said, look at the TLT today quickly. We talked about it yesterday. 143 and change was the high back in July of 2016. And look where it traded today. So maybe you have, in the short term, a bit of a double top. What does that mean? It means maybe yields in the U.S. for the short term have stopped going down. Maybe you can trade against that as well. Well, Germany, who's in the center of the trade storm, yeah. you can make an argument that, that Germany has been, is the most aggrieved party here because they're the largest export economy in the world relative to their overall GDP. And if you think about um, where they are in a negative bit, why, when you hear about the ECB talking about different forms of stimulus they could provide, let's buy futures, why aren't they printing massive billions of dollars in, 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 in essentially bunds and going and buying U.S. Treasuries?
Treasuries with that, with the ultimate positive carry trade. And what that definitely tells you is that this is going to put continued downward pressure on U.S. yields. But but it tells you where the, the carry trade, I think, is more rooted in central banks than it is in hedge funds. The other part of this, though, is this is what Steve started to talk about. He's calling around to desks around the street, repo desks. You know, the key here is that if you think about the most leveraged players on Wall Street, and I mean around the world, you're talking about guys that are playing on the yield curve. And you're talking about guys that are levered anywhere from five to 50 to one on low vol instruments where they are trying to amp up and amplify. Um, that's where the fear should be coming out of this. That's where we have danger. All right, coming up, Lyft hitting the skids in the after hours following results. We'll tell you what is driving the wild action. Plus the one chart that says we could be headed back for our December lows. One top technician will break it down. We are live from the NASDAQ market site. Much more Fast Money right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on ride-hailing company Lyft, the stock making a U-turn. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, after its results, after the vow, let's get Brutal. to Deidre Bosa in San Francisco nice. with, with more. Deidre. Not bad, Melissa. Uh, we saw shares initially surge on the back of those big beats and raised guidance shares, then went negative as the company said that its lockup period is scheduled to end a month earlier than expected. But guys, that really doesn't change the fundamentals, which are improving. This quarter, Lyft gave indication of that across a number of metrics, including revenue per active rider, and said that it's seeing an accelerated path to profitability, which should be music to Wall Street's ears. Now, as price wars ease somewhat with Uber, Lyft was able to cut down its sales and marketing costs. Those include those rider discounts. It also improved its loss guidance this year by $300 million. Now, all of this, guys, raises the stakes for larger ride-sharing rival Uber, which reports tomorrow. It's getting a bounce on the back of these Lyft results. But remember, Uber is global. Even if price wars are easing here in the U.S., that is certainly not a given abroad. It also has more moonshot projects that it's investing heavily in. And remember, Uber has not said when it would reach peak losses, unlike Lyft. So Lyft's analyst call is underway right now. I'm going to get back on it, guys, but I'll be back later with some color. Back to you. Right. Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa in San Francisco for more instant reaction to Lyft earnings results. Let's bring in Fast Money friend and Lyft Ventures founder, Gene Munster. Gene, great to have you with us. At first blush, it looks like a great quarter. Um, the reversal in the stock, does it have anything to do with the lockup expiration, which is basically around the corner, August 19th. 
I think so, Melissa. It was an odd dynamic. The results were out about 45 minutes before the stock had that that 10% dip, and that dip came just a few minutes before the call started. So uh, given that, I think this was related because that's about the same time that that news about that lockup seems uh, like uh, irrational behavior from investors that uh, shifting a lockup period would have that kind of an impact. But I do believe that that was, in fact, what is uh, drove that, that pullback irrational in that, uh, you know, that selling pressure of an additional 275 million shares that would exist either in either August 19th or three weeks after August 19th or four weeks. And it doesn't really make exactly. a difference. Exactly. That, okay. that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't really make much of a difference. Are you feeling better about Lyft and its prospects than, than 24 hours ago? I am, in particular about this concept of increasing revenue per user. So that was about 20, that was up about 23% year over year. It was about 10% higher than what I was expecting. And why that is important is when you think about some of the comments from Deirdre on this competitive environment, that's a sign that some of this competitive uh, duopoly between Uber and Lyft is at least subsiding in the near term. That's critical because when you think about this story, this is all about laying the groundwork for the long term. And I want to quickly emphasize uh, that is that the long term has a give and a take to it. The, the, the negative piece is that this investment phase, which uh, is impacted by how much revenue they can get per user, is pretty significant. They lost $600 million in the quarter compared to, let's say, uh, uh, Tesla, for example, that lost uh, $400 million in the last quarter. Uh, but the positive, and this is why I'm generally more positive than I was 24 hours ago, the positive is that this is still a nascent market. We're talking about 30 million people in the U.S. use some form of ride-sharing on a monthly basis. There's 255 million adults in the U.S., so we're roughly 12% of the way there. Obviously, we won't get to 100%, but the idea of being able to create uh, some leverage, or at least hope of leverage, I think is a material step forward for the company on this earnings report. Gene, quick question, and you obviously know this a lot better than that. Third quarter guidance, I mean, this number seems staggering to me. And I don't want to get too down the weeds here, but adjusted EBITDA they have coming in midpoint, positive $200 million. I think the guidance was for negative $300 that's a, that's a half a billion dollar swing. Where did that come from? Well, part of it's this leverage, and specifically is you're getting uh, the, the, the guidance was about 10% higher than what the street was expecting for September. Uh, that uh, powered some of that. There must be something that's going on related to some of the OPEX and some of the investments that they're doing. Maybe they're pairing some of that back to get there, too. So it's a combination of both. But the most obvious is just this idea that uh, they're increasing revenue per user. The users, the number is 21.8 million. That was essentially in line. It was 3% better than what the street is focusing on. So uh, the simple answer is how they got there is we're starting to see some leverage. Uh, and part of the leverage is they're gaining market share, too. This is another important point about how I feel about the story longer term is, yes, Uber does have more levers to pull uh, with other bets. But if you look at just pure the U.S. market, uh, Lyft grew at 70%. Uber's going to grow probably sub-20% in the U.S. This is the second quarter in a row where they have gained what I think will be measurable market share, which is uh, some part of the equation to ultimately getting a profitability. Did you say Lyft was going to grow 70% and Uber was going to grow 20% in the U.S.? Yeah, the just reported quarter, yeah. uh, Lyft reported 70% revenue right. growth, and, and uh, the street's looking for generally just under 20% wow. for Uber for June. Quite a differential. Gene, grade the quarter for us. Uh, I'm going to give it a B plus, and uh, nice leverage in the business. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. 
Uh, also see this uh, idea of revenue per user being a positive. Uh, and the reason why I didn't drift into the A territory, I had nothing to do with the lockup, but was the reason why I kept it in the, the B category was that we still have a long way to go. This uh, is a special type of investor that needs to be ready for a lot of lumpiness. And you see it with the street models getting uh, whipped around here tomorrow. And so uh, all in, Melissa, B+. Plus. All right, Gene, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Pina Jarian, Uber's out tomorrow after the bell. Yeah, and, and you, it just makes... Would okay. you rather? Would I rather? Oh, oh yeah, I, I can already right answer to that it. Right to yeah, it. I'm going to jump Come right on it. I'm going to say lift. And the reason I'm going to say that is I've been looking for growth. Both these two companies lose money, lose money, lose money, and we know we've talked about that. We talk about peak losses and all the rest of it, but... It seems to me, unless something changes in the dialogue we hear back from Uber, maybe it seems as if right now Lyft is taking some of that share away from Uber. And in which case, if they are, and their revenue per user is as good as it sounds like it might be, and the growth that Gene's talking about is 70%, that tells me that they are eating the lunch right now of Uber, at least here. Now Uber obviously has the global exposure as well. But I think Lyft right now, it makes sense to me finally, because maybe there's a light at the tunnel of, when do they start to make money? And the global exposure may or may not be a good, a good thing, thing for right. business. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. The, but I think all of what Pete's saying is really interesting about their metrics being better. I'm wondering if Uber really should actually be down for a couple of reasons. Remember, we saw Beyond Meat, huge quarter, but then they announced they were, their lockup was expiring early. They ended up pricing that really in the hole, right? Yeah. So if Lyft were to do the same thing, you got to wonder, Uber, would I rather be a seller of Uber here to be able to buy Lyft on a very potentially, you know, nice opportunity to buy it in the hole for, versus where it's trading right now on good numbers? Yeah. I mean, it's 275 million shares that will that, become if available. All, if that all trades. Right. Yeah. What made Lyft more attractive going into this IPO season for both these companies was the, 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 the lack of supply. I mean, there's a much, much, much smaller deal. Um, I actually think liquidity ultimately helps this company. Um, and I just remember, going into the IPO, remember who had the growth, as we talked about. Um, 41%, I don't, I'm not sure I understand Gene's numbers. I'm sure they're right. But I, I know 21.2 million uh, in this quarter versus 15 million a euro. That's 41 percent. Um, and going into the IPO, they were growing at about 50 percent year over year. So as far as I'm concerned, this isn't deceleration. This is a company growing at an enormous clip, much uh, in excess to where Uber is. Now I know you might be biased because of your past history. <laughs> no question. I was one as of, well, a driver. We have, I mean, I'd like to run the video for you because I was one of the original Lyft drivers, as you can see. Take a look at this genius video. Nice car, here. by the way. That Lyft or Uber? I like those gloves. Lyft. Oh, that's Pedro. Lyft. That's you keep your lift. pink mustache up front? Excuse me? Um, uh, anyway. I love the laugh track. Really helping my bad jokes the white, out, too. The white gloves were tremendous. The hat. I mean, uh, can we a, comment for real? Yeah, I'm going to give you a comment. If you can wrap your head around this, around the lockup coming off August 19th, if you can get your arms around that and are comfortable, this was a very good quarter. I mean, you see the growth that Pete's talking about. That's what you have to be. If you can get comfortable with that, you buy the stock. I would be concerned. Listen, the stock trades 4 million shares a day. 275 million aren't going to come on one day. That is a significant number, though. All right. For all the key takeaways from this quarter, head to our website, CNBC.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. Here's what else is coming up on Fast. Energy alert. Oil tumbling as it heads back to its lowest level of the year. We're drilling down on the crude collapse. But first... Gold shining as investors seek safety. Is it the beginning of a new gold rush? We're digging in when Fast Money returns.
Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create, like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was a roller coaster ride on Wall Street today, a rate shock hitting stocks only to turn around late in the day. Gold surging to yet another six-year high, but you might want to break out the drama mean because our next guest says the wild moves in the market are far from over. Let's go off the charts with Newton Advisors President Mark Newton. Mark, what are you looking at? Thanks, Melissa. Yeah, volatility is back in a very big way if today's roller coaster taught us anything. So let's take a look at three key markets, treasuries, S&P, and gold. You see yields. All of a sudden, stocks have started to act very much in tandem with yields, moving in the same direction. This didn't happen last year. You saw the break of this longer-term uptrend in yields. This happened last December. That was right when actually stocks were bottoming. So yields have been going down literally this whole time when stocks have actually rallied up until May. That changed. It was really the break of 194 last week. That really precipitated the entire sell-off in risk assets. So we saw a quick move down, almost 40 basis points in yields within five trading days. S&P followed suit. We moved down. We see now RSI is down at a 20 on a weekly basis. That's the lowest level we've seen in more than a decade. Even back in 2008, we saw rates go from about 5% to 2%. RSI did not get to 20. So we are very oversold. Technically, 1.55 to 1.57, I think, is a near-term floor. But any bounce really should be used as a chance to buy treasuries. My thinking is we're going to get back to right near prior lows from 2016 and 2012. We were really right between 132 and 137. It seems a long way off. We're heading towards the seasonally bearish months of August, of course, latter part of August, September, which traditionally are bullish for treasuries. It's right to be long treasuries. So right now, uh, that's the trend for treasuries. Any sort of bounce would be used as a chance to, uh, to really buy treasuries. What happened in S&P? We got down under 29.54 last Thursday when the 10-year broke 194 to the downside. This also coincided with prior highs back in late April, May. The common saying, former resistance becomes support. When this is broken, two different areas of prior resistance and support broken. That gave way to a big period of acceleration down lower. So where are we now? Near term, we're starting to get oversold. We're starting to see VIX backwardation, uh, put the call, equity, equity, put the call, reach the highest level of the year. My thinking is we are close to a near term low 
but I can't rule out a move down to really test the lows that we're seeing back in June. That's 27.32. That's going to be a big, big level. Under that would give way to a move down to test last December's lows. Right now, I think it's premature. Fear is starting to rally and, and, and really raise fear up very, very quickly based on the pullback we've seen, of course, for a lot of the right reasons. We see, uh, you know, policy uncertainty, lack of a trade deal. All those things are weighing on investors' minds. So as S&P sells off, fear is rising much more quickly than what we expected with S&P down only 5% from the highs. Here's the monthly chart. This is what's interesting. Look at what's happened with momentum since last January. We reached the highest period in RSI we've seen in over a decade. This is important because on subsequent retests, we've moved higher and higher. Momentum has gone lower and lower and lower. For me, that is an intermediate-term concern. We saw that back in 2007. We also saw it back in 1998 to 2000. Both those things warned it's not a bear market potentially, but we are seeing a slowing down of momentum, and that could be problematic heading into next year. For now, you've got to watch 2732. A break of that takes us down to really last December's lows. That really is the larger line in the sand. We cannot break last December's lows without thinking we are going into a bear market very, very quickly. Finally, let's take a look at gold. What's happened with rates pulling back? We see the dollar gradually starting to roll over a little bit. If the administration uses any sort of attack on the Chinese by trying to take down the dollar, of course, that'll be even more bullish for precious metals. We saw gold get above this key level, 1365. That was a six-year breakout for gold. Near term, we've gotten above 1,500 in the last couple of days. Momentum has gotten very overbought, really at 83 on a weekly basis. If you're a trader, you want to sell into gold initially between 15.20 and 15.80. For investors, though, you really want to stay long over the next 12 to 24 months, I think, and really any pullback is a chance to buy the precious metals. We should be entering a time when commodities finally start to work. We're seeing a little bit of evidence that finally with gold and with silver, one of the better places to be in the near term. What do you see for the, for the dollar, Mark? And should we assume that the typical correlations that we see between the dollar and gold or dollar and rates hold? You know, a lot of this, Melissa, is going to have to do, I think, with Brexit, obviously, with a lot of part of the dollar, at least the DXY is, is versus not only the euro, but against pound sterling. So, uh, you know, near term, you could see the dollar sort of churning like we've seen. But, but in general, dollar should be beginning an eight-year pattern to the downside, an eight-year cycle. We've seen this historically over time, which means, in my view, the dollar should be heading lower over the next few years and not higher. So that really weighs in and, and uh, justifies my thinking that, that uh, you know, commodities should be outperformers over the next year or two. It's right to own hard assets and really potentially diversify out of stocks starting you know, next year. But this volatility, I think, is a straw that's breaking the camel's back. And uh, it's definitely a wake-up call in terms of volatility. Mark, thank you. Mark Newton Thanks. of Newton Advisors. Uh, what does the world look like if rates go back to one, three, five-ish? Does the outside old, of the U.S. No, no, here in the oh, United oh. States on the ten-year yield. I mean, does the oh, old the sort of reaction that things must be bad and the Fed will step in as a backstop? Does that no, no longer look, work, I, or thing? I mean, is it just hell in a handbasket at that point? Well, you know, Mark talked about the correlation between stocks and bonds, and and, and to me, the minute that that broke down, the, po- the the positive correlation wasn't good, but the minute that broke down, that told you one thirty-six is terrible for equities, is my view. Pete. Well, I would just answer something about what Mark was just talking about in terms of SLV, GDX, GLD. Absolutely. Since June 1st, it's been absolutely a monster. And today, they were buying the SLV, which we'd seen a little bit of that, and it's not moved nearly as much as gold. But keep an eye on silver. I think it's ready to explode to the upside. All right. Coming up, we're all over Lyft Earnings. That call's just wrapping up. We'll give you all the highlights. Plus, crude careening back to 50 bucks at its lows today. Could the commodity fire up once again? 
Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Crew tumbling in today's session. WTI is now back to its lowest level since June. The big move lower, taking down energy stocks, still the worst performing sector this year. But could oil fire up again? Guy, what do you say? Listen, I was incorrectly uh, wrong about uh, bullish in oil and wrong. I pitched Devin on the power pitch a while back. That's proven to be awful. With that said, some of these stocks are trading like they're going out of business. For example, look at Slumberger, SLB. We're trading at levels we last saw seven or eight months ago, and valuation is just ridiculous. Doesn't mean the stock can't go lower, but at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, if crude were just to stop, if you're just to look at these stocks, almost by definition, there has to be value there. So, yes, I've been wrong. Yes, crude looks extraordinarily vulnerable, but the stocks are just too cheap. Although you said you were incorrectly wrong. Wouldn't that make you right? right? No, you're right. I, I, sorry I was going to say, but, I, yeah, <laughs> I got tongue-tied. Sorry, no, I'm sorry. I mean, I double happens. negatives are generally not... Can you find value in the uh, oil patch? I I don't really own very much. I'm I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of the dynamic of a slowing, uh, you know, slowing demand as well as excess supply. And so I, I don't own a lot. No. So you asked about 136 on the 10-year. That, that's terrible for oil. And, and if you think about where we were at 136, oil was probably at $35, $40. So uh, between the, the top-down supply-demand fundamentals and what's going on with growth, this is not a time to own oil. I think the one area that I still like, and I own it, and I'm probably going to add to it soon, is KMI. I look at Kinder Morgan all the time, and I own XM, XOM, ExxonMobil. It's that, utility. One, that one I've had for a very long period of time. It's got great dividend yield. You can sell calls against it, but it is ha- suffering a little bit as well, along with the rest of the energy names. My, my exposure right now in energy is very, very low. But I do think this 51 level seems to be an area that it's, it's held before. If it holds again, I think we've got a shot to see this thing start to bounce back up. All right. Coming up, big tech still the hottest sector on Wall Street this year. But the FANG stocks have gotten crushed since earnings. We'll tell you why the hot trade may be losing its bite. Plus, check out, check out mm. shares of Lyft now taking off on the back of its earnings report after the bell. We will bring you the latest from that conference call. Don't go anywhere. Much more fast right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tech making a big comeback along with the rest of the market, finishing the green as stocks recovered from steep losses earlier in the session. But one streaming giant didn't load back up the oh, group. Oh, oh, wow. Oh, um, Netflix <laughs> finishing in wow, the red, no. down nearly 2%. Okay, I am reading prompter. <laughs> and She's this is what it says in the prompter. I am not this corny in real life. <laughs> I can strive to be, but I can never be that. that All right. Um, so Netflix is down today, adding to a rough fall since it reported earnings. That's not the only Fang name having trouble these last few weeks. Some of the other tech stocks down big since reporting. Facebook, Amazon, Apple, all posting big declines. So is it time to rethink some of the Fang names? Key. I think, listen, we've talked about this for a while now, and it started with Netflix, but Netflix's setup was different. But when Facebook reported, we said there's a very good chance it trades at an all-time high and fails. That's what happened. Apple, very similar, and we talked about Amazon. Now they're at levels where you take a look. Out of all the names you mentioned, I think the most significant drop-off is probably in Amazon. And if you really need to step a toe, thinking that today is a tradable bottom, I think Amazon sets up really well, Melms. I think of the names that stand out the most for me, you brought up Apple, but I'd also say Facebook. On this sell-off right now, given the quarter that they actually reported and everything else, I I still think the fundamental story is intact. I know they have all their issues. I know that there's always going to be something with Facebook that's going to be out in the media. But I still think that people aren't leaving the platform because of that. I think Facebook's a steal here. Was Netflix down because of Disney? 
Well, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. But it's it's very clear that Netflix has been down since Disney announced Disney Plus. And, and I think Netflix has their own issues. But we've talked about this impending competitive environment that, that's been surrounding them. And it's it's now here. Now we've heard about Time Warner and HBO and Max and all that. So um, if you think about Netflix being dead money, and if, if, if Carter was here, he'd talk about risk-adjusted returns. I mean, Netflix, since the middle, really, of 2018 has been not a stock you wanted to own for that reason. I I agree with Pete on Facebook. I mean, that quarter was great. Extraordinary growth. And in this market, you're looking for growth that, you know, can be somewhat out of uh, the crosshairs of the trade war. And Alphabet, I mean, that was an extraordinary quarter as well. Plus, they're out there buying back stock. I like them both. Oh, but here's a would you rather. (laughs) Would you rather rather. If you were to add to a position right now, though, would you rather Facebook or Google? Uh, I would add Google here. Okay. Interesting. Would you rather, yeah. by the way? I like Still it. ahead, we're all over lift in the after hour session. Stock on the move after reporting results. A conference call just wrapping up. We'll break down the big headlines plus rival Uber. Hearing up to report after the bell tomorrow while the options market is betting on a big move. We are live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more fast money. Still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Lyft now uh, taking off on the back of the earnings results. Uh, very volatile ride here. Let's get to Deirdre Bose, who's been listening into the conference call. What's the latest, D? Well, Melissa, for ride sharing, it's all about that path to profitability. And Lyft says that it is getting there faster than even the company anticipated, thanks to healthier market dynamics. More specifically, we began to adjust prices on select routes and in select cities based on costs and demand elasticities. We expect that these changes will accelerate Lyft's path to profitability, and further, we believe these price adjustments reflect an industry trend. In terms of our outlook, let me start with revenue. We are significantly increasing our revenue outlook based on our strong Q2 results, improvements in monetization, and continued evidence of healthy market dynamics in our core ride-sharing business. So those healthier market dynamics leading to smaller losses and 70% revenue growth for Lyft year over year. Now, since this is a duopoly, those same forces should be benefiting Uber, too, theoretically. The big question for Uber tomorrow, though, when it reports, is if the company is seeing more rational markets abroad as well and how Uber Eats and its moonshot projects fit into the picture. Now, as for Lyft, it got a lot right this quarter. Keep in mind, though, it is still on track to lose nearly a billion dollars this year. And they're investing in other unproven, very competitive businesses like scooters and e-bikes and autonomous driving. Notably, lastly, want to note that it's still about $8 from its IPO price, even with this nice after-hours pop. Back to you. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa in San Francisco. Lyft shares up by about 6% right now as we prepare for Uber tomorrow. Gene Munster was talking about those moonshot bets and and talking about them in the context of levers to increase, um, I don't want to say profitability, but improve their results. Do you view them that way or are they going to be a drag? Well, if you listen to them talk about industry trends and you talk to them, they're they're all of their what do we want to call it, their computer data, but their, their, their ability to understand where they have elasticity in their markets means that they're, you know, whether it's surge pricing or whether they can actually be charging more to customers where they can and that that's happening throughout the industry is part of why this is a good thing, until you can't. Right. If you can wrap your head around that lockup, I'll say it again, this was a, a ridiculously strong quarter for them. So you, you have to be encouraged. It just comes down to 
what happens on August 19th. I, you know, I think the smart thing to do is wait and see. But if you want to be aggressive, to Pete's point, there's growth here. You know, if you want to play at that end, there's nothing wrong with this stock in terms of the, the, the quarter. All right, let's talk about Uber. Um, it's again reporting after the bell tomorrow. What are the options markets saying about the move we should see for the stock? Mike is here at the plaza with the options action. Mike. Here I am in New York. In part because of Uber, I actually took them to the airport yesterday. So in cases like Uber, recent IPOs where you don't have the history that you often have for other stocks when you're taking a look at earnings, the options market is really the only place you can go to get some sense of how the stock might behave. Because, of course, this is where the buyers and sellers of moves in the stock can essentially establish what the correct price for it is. In situations like Uber, where conveniently it happens to have weekly options, the way to figure out how much the options market is thinking it's going to move is you try to identify the strike price that is closest to where the stock is currently trading. In this case, that was $40. So you would look at the 40 strike calls and puts, and you add up the prices of these two together. In this case, it works out to $3.60, which is 9% of the current stock price. So the options market is implying that Uber is likely to move 9% up or down by Friday after they report. So we can also take a look, interestingly, at some of the activity that we saw today because really over the last 20 days or so, as it has generally been the case for Uber, the flow has been somewhat bearish. But interestingly, today, um, we actually saw more calls than puts. That hasn't typically been the case. And the most active of those was the weekly 45 calls. Now, those are considerably out of the money and much more than the 9% that the options market is implying. But we'll also notice that they were ex- exceptionally cheap. So I think what might be going on here was that somebody was saying, these are cheap lottery tickets in case Uber actually gives us a positive upsize surprise. And actually, what, what we're seeing from Lyft is possible. Pete, would you be interested in those cheap lottery tickets? Uh, I always love those risk-reward-wise. I mean, you're, you're only putting out so much, and you know exactly what you can lose. So, yes, I'd probably do that too, Mel. But quite honestly, I look at the road to profitability that was laid out by Lyft. Uber's got to do something similar. They're, they're losing money so fast. They're it's a different amazing. business, though. How can they possibly do that? I, I, mean, <laughs> I think that it comes down to Lyft being the company right now who's actually got the upper hand in terms of some of the power structure of what's going on between these two different ride shares. All right. Mike, thanks for the action. We'll see you tomorrow on Options Action. No, you oh, won't. Sorry, no, not tomorrow. You won't. <laughs> That's yeah, usually I what I do, screw up days. And then you Wednesday. Did. Well, you know, I've been waking up really early, and it feels like no, no, five weeks are, have gone by since Monday. Had a busy so, week. sorry. Had a busy week. She's also not Friday. writing the copy on the prompter. <laughs> Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when we'll see Mike along with the rest of the crew. Up next, Final Trades. Final trade time. Oh, look at the rain. Stormy. I hope oh, you guys all brought umbrellas. Ominous. Otherwise, you're just out of I luck. Got no <laughs> <laughs> Final trade time, Pete. Well, the same buyer who bought the, uh, the September 9 puts in GE is back rolling them down. I bought it with them. The October 8 puts today, 66,000 of those bought. I'm in it. I think it's going lower. Tim Seymour. In terms of stocks that certainly have appeared oversold this week and have found another base, look at Alibaba. I, I think trade war stock we know, but a place where you can look at the valuation. This is one you can own through difficult times. Chairwoman. Yes. To the extent that Disney got hit on the Star Wars attraction not doing well, nobody does this better than Disney. They will get that part right for Disney here. Guy I haven't been a big fan it. of the banks here in Melbourne. When Citibank trades at a 3 to 5% discount to tangible book, it typically is a buy. That's where it is now. Symbol. That does it for us here on Fast. See back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.